Fugitive Dreams, the new film from Jason Newlander, is a black and white dreamy journey with two homeless travelers. I'm recording this intro on September 1st, the morning after the film debuted online at Montreal's virtual Fantasia Film Festival. To mark the occasion, Jason and I talked about how he became a first-time director at 50 and why he wanted to portray homelessness on film. But we also talk a lot about trains. When you write a screenplay, it costs you nothing to type the words, they hop onto the back of a train. But doing that means a lot of people have to spend a lot of time actually getting the train. Jason tells me how Fugitive Dreams did it, what it cost, and how to make your own train movie. The film premieres in the United States next month. By the way, if you like this episode, check back Friday when we'll have movie maker managing editor Caleb Hammond speaking with Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, Charlie Kaufman. I'm Tim Malloy, and here's Jason Newlander, director of Fugitive Dreams. Jason Newlander, congratulations on Fugitive Dreams. Just to start, where can people see this film and what's happening with it right now? Well, right now we are um, premiering it at Fantasia Film Festival. So anybody who's listening to this who lives in Canada uh, can actually experience it through them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've kind of geo-limited who can see it to Canadian folks. But um, the US premiere happens at the end of October with the Austin Film Festival. And um, then everybody in the U.S., I think there's like going to be a 48-hour window where people can see it through that festival. And then, of course, there'll be rollout with more wider distribution as time goes on. That's great. What is this film about? Well, at its core, I think it is about our capacity as humans for, to find grace, compassion, forgiveness and love. Yeah. Uh, and I start with those themes because I was looking to make a movie dealing with those themes as a result of all of the vitriol online that happened. It felt like there was just this tsunami starting in 2016 uh, and um, continues. Uh, and I just was like, man, we need more love in the world. Yeah. So uh, I want to make a movie about love. Um, the plot is about these two homeless drifters, one of whom we open the film with her attempting suicide. And this other, this homeless guy inadvertently stops her. Yeah. In the process, he thinks that he's actually injured her. And so she tries to get away from him, but he will not let her go. And then they become these unlikely traveling companions across a very surreal and magically real middle America. It's a little waiting for Godot. uh, That's actually a good, uh, it is a little bit waiting for Godot, yes. Yeah, because you kind of don't know where you are. You kind of don't know what year it is, but it does feel like it could be happening right now. Yeah, I think that's great. And like Waiting for Godot, I think that, I I hope that the film kind of operates on two levels simultaneously. One is kind of the quote unquote realism of what you're seeing on screen. Although my film is not exactly traditionally realistic, but but also I think that there's this kind of allegorical component to the film. I think that, you know, that sort of maybe has a deeper metaphorical message about this idea of grace, compassion, forgiveness, and love. Yeah, and it's also a story about a white man and a black woman, and 
their different experiences with police at some level, which is incredibly timely. And I'm sure you couldn't have predicted, but wow. <laughs> yeah, I when oh, so the, the movie is based on a play that I directed many years ago. And um, this was when Bush was president. And um, I think the play was written in part in response to that time and um, the, but then when I reread the play script in 2016, looking for a project to develop into, a mo into my first feature, yeah. um, I mean, I found myself in tears at the end of it, of reading the play version. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is more relevant now than any of us, and certainly Carrie Dutts Fish, the playwright, could have realized back, you know, then. Yeah. And, yeah, it's become even more, I mean, particularly, I mean, I'm fearful of where we're headed in terms of a potential rise in homelessness as yeah. things move forward. So the homelessness component for sure, you know. Absolutely. And I, I just like spending time with two homeless people in on film in a way that we usually don't. I mean, usually you know, we have whatever ideas we have about the homeless and it's, it's just so dismissive to say like, Oh, there was a homeless guy out there. And we never think about who that person is and what his drives are and desires are and how he got that way. And I just thought it was just helpful in addition to just, you know, enriching to spend time with two, two real fully formed homeless people. I thought that was interesting. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, um, I really have to give credit where credit is due. These characters are drawn really from this play, you know, that mm -hmm. um, Caridad's Fitch wrote. But in adapting it for film, I thought a lot about the world in which, the sort of mise-en-scene and um, how we would find a way to create that kind of timelessness that you were talking about earlier and that sense of isolation that people who are homeless feel. My wife actually works in affordable housing and she um, deals with homeless issues kind of all the time as part of her job. Oh, wow. And um, talks about how like one of the things that homeless people say that they really want, maybe more than anything, is just for people to see them. Right. You know, when we're stopped at a traffic light and somebody's panhandling, we tend not to even look at them. Right. And we're fearful of them. And, um, you know, here in this film, I think you have two people. I mean, we don't out and out say it. Um, and I worked really hard to make sure that, and I don't think that it is, but to make sure that, it, that the film was not going to be exploitative in any way. Yeah. But it also deals with one of the key issues of... Um, homelessness, which is mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, without ever saying that the characters are mentally ill, you know, in the dialogue at all, yeah. I think it becomes evident over the course of the, of watching the film that particularly John is just not seeing the world from the perspective of somebody who is not afflicted with mental illness. And, um, mm -hmm. You know, and much of the movie is kind of th through his eyes. So anyway, I really appreciate you saying that uh, you feel like these are fully formed people. 
Well, it's interesting because you can see them as kind of allegorical characters, or you can see them as this is the waiting, waiting for Godot thing. You can see them as allegorical characters, or you can see them as just these two people, which is neat. Thanks. It's, it's, yeah. Now, something I think about or used to think when I would watch movies kind of before I had a job interviewing movie makers, I kind of assumed if somebody has a movie on TV or on the screen, they're millionaires, um, they got some great deal with someone or their parents are super rich or something. Um, not really understanding that in real life, filmmakers are really tend to be hard scrabble people who are really working hard to put things together and making deals and, you know, getting favors cashed in and things like that. What is your background and how did you come to filmmaking? Well, my background is in live theater and I, and I'm coming into filmmaking. I, I feel like pretty late. Um, I just turned 50 this year. Cool. Uh, this is my first feature. Um, but I, for decades, have been directing plays, and um, most, almost everything I've directed was through a theater company that I founded in Austin, where I live, uh, that was devoted to developing and producing new, pretty avant-garde scripts. Yeah. So um, I have a ton of experience working, you know, and, and it, at that company, I produced and directed more than 50 productions. Yeah. So... Um, I've got a pretty hefty background in developing new material. I definitely feel like I'm a fully formed artist. You know, I'm not, I'm not figuring out who I am artistically at this point. Um, you know, I definitely know what I like and I know what I want to make. Um, and the other piece of that is I do have a lot of fundraising experience under my belt supporting this not-for-profit theater company that I ran for so many years. So, um, all of those things came together. Actually, before I made this feature, I made a couple of short films. And um, the first one I made, just to even see if this was a medium, I thought that this was a medium that I wanted to work in and that I wanted to transition to, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know until I actually did it. It was so funny. I found myself on set and I was like, this is one, I was kicking myself that I just didn't start 20 years earlier. You know, um, but two, uh, like all of this experience that I built up to that point, both artistically and professionally, I felt like I was putting all of that together in that experience of directing that short film. Yeah. And I was, it just felt so organic, that transition. Yeah. Um, and I think it made it possible to then pull off um, you know, <laughs> a fairly ambitious first feature. Um, you know, to, uh, somewhere in the middle of the shooting process, I was like, my goodness, why did I not write a screenplay that featured two people sitting on a couch, not moving? Um, but when we were working on that train and things were really starting to, yeah, this not very good left turn uh, in terms of our time management and, um, it was, um, it was, uh, I was just like, thank goodness I have a ton of experience under my belt where I can at least wrap my hand around the pot, like how to solve this problem that we are now facing. Yeah, I got to read the awesome article that you wrote for Movie Maker back in January, I believe it was, um, uh -huh. about your experience with the train. Can you tell people? I mean, the whole story is, it's a long story, but can you tell people at, pod, at podcast length what happened with the train? Because a lot of the movie takes place in the back of a boxcar. 
Well, um, the very short version of this is that even to get access to the train was this kind of magical um, conflagration of things that any one of them, if they had gone wrong, would have meant we weren't shooting on a train. I mean, it was, you know, um, I, I figured actually that there was no way that I would even be able to shoot on a train, but I did know. So we were talking about building some kind of like process trailer, you know, maybe taking like a trailer pulled behind a pickup truck with built out to look like the inside of a box car and kind of driving along private yeah. roads or something, <laughs> um, which definitely would have been the backup plan if we hadn't landed the actual train. But, yeah. um, what, but when I went to pitch, so just to find out whose rail line we would even have access to shoot on, <laughs> it led me to Capital Metro Authority, which, has the, which runs the commuter rail in Austin. Yeah. And they um, were really great. Like they were like, yeah, we can definitely work something out with you guys, like to shoot people walking along the tracks, you know, safely. And this, these are the times when the our commuter train isn't running on these particular tracks, blah, 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 blah. But then they were like, but if you guys need access to a train, they pointed us, I didn't even know about this, this not-for-profit that does like train car restoration. Amazing. So, Turns out they had their own, um, uh, what do you call it, locomotive. And uh, when um, they and I started talking, we um, realized that they were like, well, if you need to use the train on the tracks, you know, we'd be happy to put together a train for you. I was like, what? So very long story short, Capital Metro allowed us to actually run these people's train on their track because the people had the train, but they didn't own the track. Then we had to like get federal <laughs> permission to do this because, um, you know, that horrible accident happened with that, um, you know, I can't remember her name, but the DP. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, so it was, you know, safety was, was, was a primary concern. Midnight midnight rambler yeah so yeah 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 so um anyway um so we ended up having to take this like formal safety train safety training course for trains um the entire crew had to anybody who was going to be on the train had to be a part of this safety training um but we got access to the train and the way we scheduled it was we had three days on the moving track to work with and then um, three days in the rail yard without the train moving, using like green screen in the background. And the way we organized it was that anything we were shooting at the door, the idea was to shoot as much of that as possible on the moving train. And then when we did the reverse angles that where we weren't actually looking out, out the train, we could shoot that while the train was still. <laughs> um, but anyway, without going into too much detail, because people could definitely read the article, um, we uh, ran into problems. And so we ended up like kind of terribly behind schedule by the end of that week to the point where I had to, I mean, I was. Well, you had, to, you had to pause every time like a cargo train was coming through. You would have to take your train, off, take your shoot offline. Yeah, onto the siding and the, and the cargo train, which we knew was going to come through once a day, two of the three days ended up getting like horribly delayed where we couldn't shoot anything for like five hours. 
I mean, it was, and we were shooting during daylight hours in the winter. So we had a total of 10 hours of shoot time. Right. And on top of that, by law, you're not allowed to drive a train, like your shift, like from pulling into the parking lot to taillights out of the parking lot for a train engineer, a train crew is 12 hours. Yeah. So, and they had to get their train from where we were shooting back to their rail yard every night, which was night, which was like 90 minutes of work for them. So like we were super truncated in terms of time. It basically allowed us eight hours a day to shoot, you know, which already in an indie film just isn't enough. Right. And we had tried to be really smart about it, which was to schedule, um, just, we just had 10 camera setups a day scheduled for those three days. But even that, once we lost five hours of, of our eight hour shoot day, two days in a row, just put us like horrifically behind schedule. So the last day on the train ended up being this horrible for the grips. It was like a 21 hour day. Yeah, We didn't finish. We had to like, um, schedule the actors to in the scenes to come back. Two of them were already scheduled to come back, and the other two miraculously were available. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the end, you can't tell on the screen. It. I, I mean, I think it looks pretty darn cool. No, it's one of those things where you know all the chaos that went on in the making of it, but people who are watching it probably will have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was a heavy lift for sure. <laughs> and the film where that terrible injury took place. Um, a woman named Sarah Jones was killed, was Midnight yeah. Rider. I said Midnight Rambler, it's Midnight Rider. Right. So sorry about that. Um, so kind of, I think one moral of this is, first of all, anything you want to do is very hard. I mean, you think, oh, we'll just shoot it on a train. You really need to think about what that actually entails when you're writing a script. Um, but the second thing is there is an answer somewhere. I mean, a lot of this was just you dealing with government bureaucracy. Yes, it is very, very true. Um, and even within the bureaucracy, like the people who were responsible for the actual, like who had any modicum of control over it, which is to say an incredible train crew, the people driving that train for us. Yeah. And Capital Metro Authority, which provide these positions called flaggers to make sure that we were safe. They had rail police. Like, I mean, there was a whole giant operation outside the normal parameters of what you would think would be a film crew. Um, they were incredible. Like they just worked so hard to make it work. And, um, you know, I, the um, outpouring of support from these people for a guy, me, who was like pretty much a total stranger to them when we first, you know, that we, you know, we did, it's not like I knew these people before we started working together. Yeah. They were, it was just amazing. Amazing. Very lucky. Yeah. Um, is this ridiculously expensive? I mean, how hard is it for just an upcoming filmmaker to use their trains? Well, we got really lucky on this and I can't say that this would happen for everybody, yeah. but the total cost to us ended up being about a thousand dollars a day for the train and the tracks. Wow. Yeah. That's really not bad. That's a train. No, it's nothing. And uh, by comparison, we had looked into a private rail line that was about, three or four hours outside of Austin is a potential place to shoot. They were asking $10,000 a day. Oh my God. So, um, but a big part of that was, it was literally six months of relationship building to get to the point where 
Cat Metro was ready to go to bat for us because they had to get the permission from the federal government to yeah. allow us to do this. Um, and it really came down to the wire um, and it came down to like the vice president of Cat Metro Transportation Authority saying, like just pushing it through. Um, wow. And that was really just months and months and months of relationship building. I mean, you know, long before we even knew that we were going to actually use a train on a track. And right up until uh, pre-pro, I mean, we weren't sure. Even in the middle of pre-pro, there was still a chance we were going to build this process trail. My God. Now, when you have this many logistics to deal with, because you're producing the film as well as directing the film, how do you stay creative? I mean, how do you sort of switch off between the, oh my gosh, I have to email that person back and respond to this person and get that okay. permit? Well, I did not produce this film all on my own, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I had... Um, two incredible producers who just had my back the whole time. And that was uh, Michelle Randolph Ferris and Jennifer Kuchai, who jumped into this project early. You know, Michelle was involved before the script, long before the script was finished. Um, you know, she was just an incredible champion for this project um, and still is, and both of them are. And, um, and Jen, I think, was one of like the first three people to read the finished, you know, the version of the script that I started actually sharing with people. Yeah. Um, you know, and anyway, they, they, so when it came down, when we were actually shooting, like Michelle was the one who really put together all of the coordination that had happened, for example, to shoot on that train. Like yeah. that was Michelle really coordinating that. Yeah. I guess my question still stands though. How do you stay creative when you have to deal with any of this logistical stuff? Um, how do you stay in the creative headspace? Well, um, one key way for me at least, which I didn't realize how much this helped me was I did in it, uh, so much prep work prior to yeah. shooting, uh, you know, um, so much that I think I realized kind of midway through the shoot, that I needed to work less hard on set than I was working. Um, huh. Like I just needed to worry about things less uh, because everybody on the team was so on the same page, you know, that, um, you know, really I could, I finally, it took me a little while, but I was like, oh, I really can just focus on the actors. Like, uh, wow. And I love, I started uh, in, uh, like I started as an actor in theater um, I kind of became a theater director as a result of having some bad experiences with directors as an actor. Um, <laughs> I became a producer as a result of wanting to have this vision as a director and wanting to make that vision go. You know, so it all comes back down to acting. And um, to me, I think you can, um, for me as an audience member of film, I think you can get away with a lot if you have really, really good acting. And if you don't have good acting, then you're, you, you'll have a harder time selling the story, yeah. which isn't to say that that doesn't happen, but, um, but good acting really can take something that's tricky and, and make it watchable, which I think my film is pretty tricky. And so um, those actors, you know, so it, it Really, it came down to just focusing my attention on the actors. I loved working with them. Like, 
I would work with all of them again in a second. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's something that happens when you've written a script sometimes where you hear a really good actor read it and you go, oh, I wasn't sure if this was very good, but that sounds really good. And you realize that a good actor can take a line, even a line that isn't great and just really sell it. I mean, that's what actors do. They're not just reading cue cards like some people think. They're yeah, yeah. Well, and um, in developing the script, April Mathis, who played um, Mary, and Olam Jones, who played Providence, I actually, before I even um, started the adaptation process of turning the play script into a screenplay, the first two calls I made after calling Cara Dance Fitch, the playwright, to ask her permission to try to adapt this thing, yeah. um, were to April and Oland to say, hey, if I adapted this play by Cara Dance, would you guys be interested in um, being in the movie? And both of them, Oland said yes without even reading the script. It was so excellent. Um, and I was like, you might want to read it before you make that determination. Um, but, um, but both of them said yes early, and the result of that was I did this uh, about a year before, you know, maybe a year and a half before we actually shot. I did this um, two-day workshop in my dining room where I flew April from New York to Austin and Alain from LA to Austin and then had a couple of the local actors and a writer who I have a ton of respect for reading the action um, to just workshop the screenplay because at that time I was really struggling with how to get into the third act in particular mm -hmm. and um, having April and Alain there to, to provide feedback in that way one really shaped how their characters evolved in the script but also really helped me because I was getting the perspective of people actually playing the roles yeah. in terms of how you know what was working what felt like a cheat you know etc and in particular april was dogged about that stuff and it was just so great 